Well, <clears throat> I don't know if you can see this. You probably can't, because I can't either. But I want to go back and just, to, just try to review a little bit here. Maybe I'll try to blow this up a little bit. So we started a church history class back in April. It was the last Sunday in April. Um, I have a really good memory, but it's really short. So I'm going to go back over this a little bit, even just, just for myself. But um, so why study it? I mean, I want to ask this first. Um, you know, this is, a, this is obviously the, the great institution of the church that the Lord himself founded. We're going to go through what is the church a little bit this morning in your notes, the first uh, half of it or so. But I think it's important to study it. Um, there's a quote in here that I started off the class with uh, by uh, Dr. Bruce Shelley. This is a lot, of, uh, a lot of my own study has come from his book. And then again, this morning specifically in MacArthur and Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine. But why study it? Many Christians today suffer from historical amnesia. The time between the apostles and their own day is one giant blank. And, and I, I've mentioned this a few times, but it's true. You know, we have obviously the written word, the eternal recorded word, forever true, infallible, um, self-proving, self-evident, all of that, all, all, all of that contained. But what has happened in history since Revelation? You know, what uh, between then and now? Um, you know, the church, uh, it's been promised that the Lord would build his church uh, he is the cornerstone, the head of the church. And so there's, there's some things that we need to understand in our day on June 25th of 2023 that the church is alive as it ever was. Um, the church is still subordinate to Christ. And, and, and I think it's just important for us to understand where in our day and age are we in church history and, on, and, and the health of the church in today's age does not depend uh, solely on you and me, um, and we will see that throughout the study of, of church history. God has been merciful to his bride, and we are his bride. The time between the apostles, though, and today is often one giant blank, and that's hardly what God had in mind. The Old Testament is full of reminders of God's interest in time. I put a couple examples in here from Exodus. And he established certain things even then to remind his people about the importance of time and the importance of church. So there are eight sort of eras that we will study uh, in this class. And we're only in the first one here. Uh, the age of Jesus and the apostles. This is where Christianity's uh, roots begin. Then after that, we're going to talk about the age of Catholic Christianity and uh, what does even that mean, uh, that term Catholic? Um, and I'll, I'll clarify that much more when we get there. The age of Christian Roman Empire, the Christian Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the age of the Reformation. And I would say if we are familiar as, as believers and as, you know, um, what we know of today's church is really... Uh, derivative of this age. This might be one of the more well-known ages. Then the age of reason and revival, age of progress, and then the age of ideologies, which we're currently in. 
and all you got to do is turn on the TV or the radio or pick up a, a magazine and, and read what nonsense is out there. Um, go to today's notes, all right, and I think I have this up here, I do. And I think before we start studying the, the history again, let's have a review of what the church is. Now, this is not exhaustive. It's not even close. So uh, what is the church? All right, well, throughout the New Testament, the church is primarily designated by the Greek word ecclesia. It's a term meaning those who are called out, which would infer that uh, the church is, a primary, is primarily a group made up of believers, those who are called by his name, uh, those who are um, active in their faith, Lord willing. But Ecclesia in the ancient world, Ecclesia referred to a group who had been called out to an administrative civic affairs or defend the community in, in battle. Uh, those are some contextual meanings. Used in a general or non-technical way, it came to mean an assembly or a congregation. And so the context, obviously, in which you would come across this word in Scripture is going to be very important. In this sense, Stephen, go to Acts 7.38. We see one of the first uses here. Acts 7.38, if I can get there. I was in Old Testament, so i got to slide several books over. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with us with our fathers, and we received living oracles to pass on you. This is the one who was in the congregation, the ecclesia, all right, the assembly. It's used here in that sense in, seven, in Acts 7.38. It's also used in a specific New Testament sense. The church of God refers to a community of those who've been called out by God from their slavery to sin through the faith or through faith in Jesus Christ. So the first instance here was a more general sense these instances, go to Romans 1.7, are much more specific, referring to God's church, to God's people. Go to Romans 1.7, one book back, very beginning of the book. Someone go ahead and read that. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ. To all those who are beloved by God, I would refer, I think that's pretty uh, implicit. Those are his people. Let's go to another, sen uh, another usage, same sense. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. This will be a bit of a Bible drill here, so just go ahead and look ahead in the notes, and once, you're, once you've got it, let's read it aloud and read it quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This really defines it, doesn't it? To the ecclesia of God, which is at Corinth, those who have been called. Pretty clear sense there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. To the Ecclesia of God. 11.16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. There you go. Again, very, very defined, the Ecclesia of God. Um, go to uh, 
A couple verses over, given if you would, go to verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. All right, a bit of an admonition there by Paul, but to the despise the church of God, the ecclesia of God. Um, go to uh, chapter 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostle, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Yeah, Paul referring to his own testimony, they're persecuting the church of God, persecuting the ecclesia, those who are called out by God. There's a bunch more here, but they're all in the same context. It's defined, it's the called out, the, those who would be in Christ, the group who are set apart, who are in Christ, and that would help define the word. The ecclesia consists of, of those whom Christ predestined in eternity past, called and justified in this present life and promised to glorify in the future, to be glorified in the future. Go to Romans 8.30. So it also has a future sense. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Right. Glorified is not yet, is it? Right? That's future. So his people, those he set apart, those who are called, uh, those he justified, also those he glorified, that's coming. So this also refers to the future tense. Go to Ephesians 1.11. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Yeah works all things this is in the aortic tense it's it's ongoing it's 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 happened it's happening it will happen um again it has a, a future connotation so <clears throat> the church was called it's set apart it's also got a future sense to it the church is not the physical building right now where we sit and where we meet you know it's often you know i'm going to church sunday morning well we are right in, a, in that sense we came here to this building, um, but really it has more to do with the fellowship and gathering of God's people. It's where, it's, nor is it a religious institution. I think too often it's uh, set aside as, you know, a, a good old boys club or, a, you know, some kind of membership thing where I can go and I can check off the box and I get my Wednesday night or I get my Sunday morning badge and perfect attendance and all of that and it's sort of institutionalized. Well, it's not that, and that was not God's intention. It's not just an ethical organization. It's not a place where we go and we sit around and we hold hands and sing Kumbaya and, and uh, also just, you know, sort of enjoy being morally good people. Um, it's much more than that. It's not a socio-political association. It's not a place where I can go and gather with people who are just, you know, like-minded and uh, maybe have the same political orientation that I have and whatever. It's, again, it's much more than that. Is it some of those things? Sure it is. But it's much more than that. It's much greater. Rather, the church is an assembly of the redeemed. And I want you to think about that. You know, I, as I sit here after being gone for, you know, a month or so, how refreshing it is just to be back with fellow believers. Um, in, in, many, in many cases, um, you and I have more in common than my own blood, than those who are in my family who are not redeemed. Um, it, is, it is not coincidence that we call each other brothers and sisters. It is, it, is, it is God's design 
that we are redeemed and that we have that in common. I've said this before with many of us. I mean, what do we really have in common in many cases apart from Christ? And, and the unity and, and that we have in Christ, is, it's amazing. The church is special. I've said this before, but it, I am a proud, very, very proud, card-carrying member of, church, or of Countryside Bible Church here in Hampton and uh, even greater, the Universal Church. That is my most favorite membership by far uh, because of what God has done, because of what Christ has accomplished for His church and for us and for me. Those who have been called by God the Father to salvation as a gift to His Son. Let's go to a few scriptures here. All right, so what is some of the future tense? This has happened at the moment of salvation, but go to John chapter 6, verse 37. Every love the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That was almost really perfect in unison. I was talking about unity and the redeemed and their unity, and you guys about read that about halfway through in unison. That was awesome. Um, no, well, whoever comes to him... What's the promise here? Never what? Never cast us away. Once God's, always God's. I read this to be eternally secure, don't you? How about uh, chapter 10, same book, verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Pretty amazing. Wherever you are on the globe, wherever you are geographically, you know, whatever age you're in, right, you belong to the Father, and I don't think anybody else is going to get possession of you. If you are in Christ, you are in the Father's hand. Not even the devil is going to snatch you from there. Go to chapter 17, verse 9, or verse 6, and then verse 9. Whoever gets there can read all, actually all three of those. Go Whoever does this one, do 17, 6, 9, and 24, please. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and mm. they have kept your word. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. I love this. I mean, the great, one of the great themes, obviously, in the book of John, in, in Christ's own prayer, we call the high priestly prayer here. Who is he praying for? He's praying for you guys, praying for us. He's praying for his church, his people. There is a past, present, and future tense here, um, you know, which you have given me before the foundation of the world. In that last verse, obviously, your salvation known to God uh, the elect uh, before the foundation of the world. And then, of course, um, he's praying for, for the Father to receive us. And we're ultimately a gift back to the Father. That's the church. The church is the corporate gathering of those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, into the king, eternal kingdom of Christ. I think it's interesting you know, a couple of years now, Pastor Rod has been teaching on the kingdom, right? And we're going to get into this this morning a little bit. John the Baptist kind of ushers in this message. Christ continues it. And what does he offer? He offers the kingdom. Well, who does he offer it to? Right? It's, a, it's an offer 
It's a universal offer, but those who will actually partake in it are those who are elect, those who are called, those who are saved. So ultimately, where we sit today, I mean, think about this for a second. Those who you are, you know, in Christ, you are shoulder to shoulder with today, are our eternal partners, are our eternal uh, brothers and sisters who will forever be in fellowship with Christ. Pretty awesome. Eternity really for us began at the moment of salvation. Go to um, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Pretty good verse on this concept. And it's a good reminder for all of us of once where we were prior to our salvation and where we are currently. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son of us. Yeah, no one on this earth in the history of earth could rescue himself from darkness, right? For sin entered through one man, that being Adam, right? And we needed the new Adam. We needed Christ to conquer that problem of sin. He did, and as a result... For those he's called, those who are in Christ, have been transferred from the domain of darkness into light. And I think we're going to be in First, uh, first John a little bit later this morning. Um, an awful lot about, um, an awful lot more instruction about those who are in Christ and the love that we should have and share for each other. We sit in light. We sit not in darkness, but we sit in light, regardless of what you know tumultuous and trials and situations we might have in our lives of, you know, physical ailment as think of so many prayer requests this morning or what is happening politically or, you know, or it doesn't matter, does it? Um, our citizenship and our domain is eternally with Christ. It is in light. That is a great, great truth. I want more on this. So let's uh, look at the citizens of heaven, not of this world. Go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this verse last night. Amy and I, um, well, Amy did, bought a, a flag for our house. So we, we like to put uh, the American flag out in the summertime. You guys probably do too. Um, I would love to get a Christian flag. You've seen it. The white flag with the red cross on it. Um, I need to start thinking more in terms of that as well. Um, maybe we have both this year. I don't know. But my most proud citizenship is certainly the one that is eternal. The one that will outlast any other citizenship. Um, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 also. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Yeah, later in this chapter, we're told not to love what? Not to love the things of the world. Not to love the world. Why is right here. All right? Because we are aliens. You ever felt that way? I have. I mean, you, you walk into some places or some stores or just you're confronted with, you know, television commercials about June Pride Month, and I feel pretty alienated. Um, I feel pretty disgusted. And you guys probably do too. Uh, well, why is that? You should have a strong hatred towards sin. I have a strong hatred toward sin. 
Um, and especially those ones that we just keep constantly being thrown in our face. How do, you, how do you, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, you know what? The Lord already has. And um, our citizenship, we will enjoy forever with Christ without any of those kinds of distractions. Great reminder. This is uh, next week, Lord willing. We will examine the church after the death of its cornerstone, that being Christ. In this lesson, though, we're going to observe the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost. I want to read it together this morning. I'll actually read this section. Uh, but having been purchased by the crucified and risen Christ. In, in 1 Corinthians, I can't remember exactly what chapter right now. It's skipping me. I want to say chapter 6. But it says in there, uh, remember, we're not to be joined with sin. Why? For we have been bought with what? A price. The church... Our individual salvation was bought with a price, the ultimate price. In fact, our religion is the only religion that in its central event, its central and most important event is on the, the, the defaming, the destruction, and ultimately the death of its God. No other religion is that way. Um, I think that's interesting because those gods are quite dead. Ours is quite alive. Um, and so there's some irony found in there. Christianity, I said this already, but I wrote it even better than how I said it, so I want to read it. Christianity is the only major religion to have its central event as the humiliation of its God. Because of Christ's humiliation, we have forgiveness. We have eternity with Him. The church has eternity with Him. So what was crucifixion? It was a barbarous death. It was reserved especially for agitators, for pirates, for slaves. Uh, this is the historical nerd in me that's going to come out here a little bit. Um, if you have read, or and, and I would encourage you to do this, but uh, Book of Martyrs and some others of, of some church fathers and uh, who've gone before us, who've died gruesome, gruesome deaths so that we can have a written copy of the word in front of us or um, the furtherance of you know, church and, and the safety of, of church to be able to worship in certain countries or whatever, um, many of them were crucified. Jewish law cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. Of course, Christ had to do that so that this particular prophecy would be fulfilled, and it was. And the Roman statesman Cicero warned, let, every, let the very name of the cross be far, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. In other words, this was a, or this was a type of punishment that was put on display for all to see who's in charge and to be preventative, don't ever mess with the state of Rome. It was a form of capital punishment, oftentimes those who were crucified were displayed on the inroads to towns or to the inroads to uh, major, you know, like what we would say a capital building or place where political officials met. It was to say to all, um, you are subject to Rome. The crucifixion process was typically included a whipping or a scourging. We know this in the case of Christ, that he was whipped and scourged. Then, he, then they were often forced to carry the heavy crossbeam to, to their determined place of death in public. When the cross was raised, again, it was a notice was also pinned to the beam giving 
the culprit's name and crime. We would just, this would be, never happen in today's world, American world anyway, this type of, of um, punishment, nor necessarily should it. I'm not advocating that. But I think there's some more irony here. On Christ's, remember what he was accused of, right? He had six illegal trials in a span of about 12 hours. And ultimately, his crime, remember what he was pinned, which was true. It was absolute 100% true then and still true now. But what he was accused of, remember, he was questioned, where is your kingdom? Do you, are you really the king? Are you, and of course, he is. So what was his crime? Is the, the Greek, Jesus uh, Nazarenus Rex Eudeorum. Can't say that very well. I-N-R-I, how about that? But it was, it read, Jesus of, Na- of Nazareth, king of the Jews, was what he was accused of and ultimately crucified for, which was, of course, and is 100% true. Well, what about Christ himself? What was his heritage? Uh, Jesus was a Jew. You know that? You're probably sitting here going, duh. You're right. And he came from a Jewish family, right? He was raised that way. Uh, We know a bit about Mary and Joseph. He studied Jewish law and he observed the Jewish religion. He knew it extremely well. Any serious study of Jesus' life makes it so clear that he was Jewish and understood the Jewish culture and Jewish law that many heretical teachings even asked if Jesus ever intended to create that congregation of followers called the Ecclesia or the church. Um, Of course, that's also also not true. This anti-institutional view of Christianity is so widespread that we've got to face the question straight away. Did Jesus ever have anything to do with the formation of the church? I mean, we know the answer to this, but it's got to be asked, and we've got to learn it. And if he did, how did he shape its special character? This is a good point to read Acts. I want to go there real quick. So slide over to the book of Acts. I'm going to read 1st chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a voice, or a heaven came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole, out, the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with, one, or speak with other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and uh, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, well, they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this doesn't sound like it is a man-manufactured event at all. It sounds like an awful lot of spiritual intervention. Brian. Yeah, it's just interesting where the setting of this is. Peter preached this on the bottom of the steps of the southern steps of the temple. So he's preaching this to, I mean, there's huge crowds usually, and it's during Passover or whatever. It's huge. And then he says, go and be baptized. Well, there's mikvahs and there. Right. So it's how the Lord leads in that. It's just it's awesome. No doubt, Brian, obviously, you were fortunate enough to see it be there. Not obviously back then, but... Not then, but I mean, you saw it. Yeah. I mean, it, this is where it would happen. I mean, this, this is it. And it's, it's really awesome to see that. I hope to see it one day. Point in reading this is obviously the, the spiritual nature, the intervention of God um, through tongues, through obviously Peter's sermon as well on the formation of the church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, go ahead and skip to your next part of your notes here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John revealed Jesus' plan for a group of followers to carry on his work. So what he began here, he also taught men for a number of years um, as his disciples to carry out his work. How about that seminary? You'd like to attend that. For approximately two years, Christ worked with his hand-picked disciples and taught them about what he called the kingdom of God. And he introduced them to the new covenant. New covenant, of course, um, replacing the old sacrificial covenant, or law. Jesus made a persistent point about the special kind of life that separated the kingdom of God from the rival authorities of young, among men. Little by little, as disciples came to understand that following Christ meant saying no to other voices calling for their loyalties. In this process, Jesus founded the church. I think it's interesting for the same, re, you know, the same distractions or some of the same issues that the disciples would have faced, you and I face. The Christian life requires us to still, in 2023, say no to things that are of the world and to not love some of the thing or of any of the things of the world, I should say it correctly. Uh, the disciples gave up everything to follow the Lord and to establish the church. Well, what was going on in this time frame? 
I think it's important for us, we're going to have a history class to study some history. So here we go. Jesus' lifetime, Palestine was a crossroads of cultures and peoples. You see this even just in the section that we read in Acts. You had how many different ethnicities and races of people just in that chapter 2 of Acts who were there to witness the establishment of the church. Um, everything from Medes and Arabs to Jews. And, and so it was a crossroads. It was a multicultural society if there ever was one. Its population about that time was estimated to be around 2 million people. Um, I pulled this from a census, a 2021 census has it approximately 9 million people um, roughly in our day and age. Jews only represented about half the population at the time of Jesus. I think that's interesting. And we read in the epistles the spreading of the church uh, happened pretty rapidly, but did it happen rapidly among the Jews? Not as much. Ruled by Rome, divided by region, religion, and politics. Palestine, Israel, was a divided region. In about one day's walk, a person could travel from a rural family village to a bustling city where people enjoyed the comforts of Roman citizenship. In Jerusalem, priests sacrificed to the Lord of Israel while not so far away, about 30 miles away, in Sebasti, pagan priests held rites in honor of the Roman god Jupiter. I mean, you think about even in Corinth, when Paul writes in there, you know, and I can just picture Paul going to the amphitheater in Corinth and saying, where is the debater of the age? Where is the, you know, come and bring it? And he's, and he's calling out, you know, right near the temple of Aphrodite, you know, right, right near pagan... Um, right in their backyard, really. It was all there. Jews deeply resented and despised pagan culture existing in their homeland. Well, why? They had been promised their own land, right? They had been promised their own place, and here they are living there, and what is it? It's invaded by outside culture. It's, not, it's an impure land in that, re, in that regard. Ironically, in the previous time period, the Hellenistic period, so that's the Greeks, led into the Roman Empire, brought in with it a lingua franca. Now, this is, this is only God. Only God accomplishes these things. All right? And, and so just see the use by God of this sort of multicultural area. Because of this lingua franca, which just means common language, it's a Latin term for that, Koine Greek. Koine Greek, which is the common Greek, and ultimately, what did it do? It provided the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translated from Hebrew to common Greek. Well, what would that allow for? Even greater knowledge and even greater spreading of, of uh, biblical truth. So even the multicultural region in which Christ lived in his day, um, God uses to further his own kingdom. Centuries earlier, the prophets of Israel had promised a day when the Lord would deliver his people from pagan cultures and rulers and establish his kingdom forever over the whole earth. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. On that day, the prophets said the Lord would send an anointed ruler, who would that be? The Messiah, to bring an end to a corrupt world and replace it with an eternal paradise, right? Ushering in the kingdom. Daniel and other prophets explained that the Lord's kingdom would be established only after a final struggle between Satan and the Lord. 
it would end with destruction and, and the existing world order and the creation of a kingdom without end. And this is found in Daniel 7. We got, we got Raj in here. He could give us a good explanation of this if we wanted. We don't have time though, Raj, so hang on to it. <clears throat> now, all kidding aside, this was the beginning of what Daniel had been prophesied. The, the Lord, the Messiah who is here, who is offering the kingdom is at hand, okay? Um, and we believe he was a bona fide offer. This belief along with the ideas about the resurrection of the dead and the last judgment, was in Jesus' day very much a part of popular culture and Jewish culture, Jewish faith. They knew it. They understood it. And yet, you have Christ standing on the edge of Jerusalem saying, Oh, Jerusalem, if you only knew. So, they missed it. Out of the distaste for life under the Romans... Several factions arose among the Jews. So I want you to, this again, just set the historical sort of political kind of socio-political culture of the time. You had four groups that were arising uh, at this time. And I want to review this. I went through this last time, but this is important. There were the Pharisees. You heard of these guys, right? So under Rome, under this time period, you have the Pharisees. These guys emphasized the Jewish traditions and practices that set them apart from pagan culture. Were these guys friends or enemies of Christ? They were enemies, right? Christ calls them like a brood of vipers. Um, Says you are of your father who? The devil. devil. He had some pretty unkind, pretty not not politically correct, right? Pharisee simply means separated ones. Now, how interesting is that? And they prided themselves on their strict observance of every detail of Jewish law. I just think of the prayer. I think of the prayer of the, the Pharisee and then the, of the tax collector, right? The one prayer is, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man, the tax collector and haughty and arrogant and unrealizing his own sin, of course, then the tax collector beats his chest, right? He beats his chest and he prays what? Lord, forgive me, wretched man that I am. Well, there is a juxtaposition, if there ever was one, between a Pharisee and a redeemed man. Their piety and their patriotism made them respected leaders among their people. They were respected. The Sadducees, who were these guys, right? We hear this a lot in Scripture, Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees were, Jewish, er, were Jerusalem's aristocracy. They were the, they were the highfalutin you know, Jews of, of the time. From this small group of wealthy pedigreed families came the high priest and also the lesser priests of the temple. So they were often in charge of the, the affairs of the temple, the Sadducees, this is so interesting, found Roman rule advantageous because they were represented by a conservative political group called the Sanhedrin. Many of them enjoyed the sophisticated manners and fashions of Greco-Roman culture. Some even took Greek names, and they had little influence among the common people. The people just kind of wrote them off. And you know what is even more interesting is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees really didn't even get along. But they had one common enemy, which united them, which was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then there was two other groups, and I want to spend some time on these guys a little bit. There were the Zealots. 
These guys were a small faction bent on armed resistance toward Roman rule over their promised land. They looked back two centuries to glorious days of the Maccabees when the religious zeal combined with a ready sword to overthrow the Greek overlords. They held small numbers of guerrilla forces in the hills of Galilee ready to ignite a revolt against the Roman authority in Palestine. These guys um, were really not effective in building a following and building a, a substantial following, uh, certainly not substantial enough to really overthrow gr the Greek rule before the Romans and then, you know, obviously Rome at the time of Christ. Um, and, and they were also, you know, you, there's a little bit of, we don't get a lot in scripture on these guys, but we know Simon the Zealot, okay? He was, he was converted out of this thinking. It's important to know that. Um, this was not in line with what Christ uh, was preaching and teaching. So there's a fourth group, the Essenes. The majority of common Jews, that's these guys, who had no interest in politics or warfare. Instead, they withdrew to the Judean wilderness where they lived in monastic communities, studied scriptures, and prepared themselves for the Lord's kingdom. Jesus began his ministry with this group of people. I want you to think about John the Baptist. Where did he initially come from and do his preaching and teaching? In what? In the wilderness. And this was often, these were the first people. Of course, Christ goes out to be baptized at Jordan, begins his ministry outside of town. Um, and these are the first people that Christ ministers to. Do you think Jews was a zealot? Um, that's what my guess is. I, I'm only going to guess because there's really not a lot of, I mean, why else include that, that name? Um, and, and, and so that makes sense to me, but I'm not going to die on that hill. Let's talk a little bit about Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus' ministry. I want to, we'll end at, after this section. Jesus chose to begin his ministry by joining a new movement in the Judean wilderness led by a prophet named John the Baptist. The last Old Testament prophet, right? Near the ford of the Jordan River, John preached to crowds wearing a garment of camel skin to repent of their sins and prepare for the coming day of judgment, receiving baptism in the, in the, in the Jordan. Many thought John was the Messiah, but we know this in, in, in the book of John. He vehemently denies this, right? He says, I'm not even worthy of removing his sandal. I think I'm getting that a little bit off, but I know that it's close. Point is, he vehemently denies that he's the Messiah. He explained his mission in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice crying in the wilderness in Matthew 3.3. John only claimed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And I want to, again, a little bit of historical context. In the ancient world, okay, this was true, and this is also important for us to understand Christ is a king, okay? In the ancient world, if a king was traveling with his entourage or with his army, and they were, uh, I, I think back to the book of Ezra, for instance, great, great example, he sent messengers or he sent forerunners ahead of him and, and to declare. Oftentimes, it would, it would include declarations of what his intent was, why he's visiting the area. Um, and, and it would warn the people of, hey, either some war is coming or whatever. Well, it's interesting that even 
to this detail, Christ's own forerunner is none other than a prophet, John the Baptist, who goes and foreruns and tells of the coming ministry just like an earthly king in his day would have done. So Christ has his own sort of earthly forerunner prophetically claiming that the king is coming and what is John's message? Repent, the king is coming, right? The kingdom of the Lord, the day of the Lord is at hand. And so it's interesting, this also fits, it's in keeping with the customs and traditions of the day. Um, So Jesus picks up his ministry from John. Rather than remaining in the desert, though, he focuses on Galilee, so he goes a bit to the north, traveling from village to village, preaching in synagogues in the evening and on the Sabbath. Of course, that was a no-no, right? That got him in a lot of trouble. Jesus taught that the rule of God was already present in the saving power in his own person, and he offered proof in his signs and miracles. This is huge paraphrasing, so forgive me. It will never get through this entire age, but I'm really paraphrasing a lot here. We'll get into more specific stuff uh, a little bit later. So, of course, news spreads, right? Long before people in every town and village are talking about Jesus, the wondrous ministry and the curing of the blind, the lame, the sick, with his voice or a touch of his hands, or even in some cases just the touch of his robe. Remember this? He feels the power of leaving. I mean, there's so many instances. Soon large crowds gathered around him wherever he spoke. Wherever he went, there was a crowd. And even a couple of times had to escape that crowd, remember? Jesus' growing popularity aroused controversy, as you would expect. Especially among the Pharisees who hated to see people following to listen to to a man who had never studied their own scribes. Of course, Jesus didn't need to. They didn't hesitate to publicly question Jesus' credentials as often as they had the chance, and Jesus welcomed their challenge. Remember, what were some of their accusations? Aren't you the son of, you know, Joseph the carpenter? You know, they kind of imply here a little bit that he's, uh, you know, he's illegitimately born. Um, They accuse him all kinds of stuff to be in cahoots with the devil. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Some of Christ's public, public teachings, such as the two men who went to the temple to pray, did not go over very well with the Pharisees. You can find that in Luke 18. Jesus handpicked 12 disciples. Again, massive paraphrasing, but I got to get through this section. 12 disciples or apostles, meaning sent ones. Well, what were they sent to do? Jesus taught them clear distinctions between his kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. They are not the same. They never were. They aren't today. And they won't be in the future. His followers would be charged to do what? To represent Christ's kingdom and ultimately what is he representing in that christ's church the high point of christ's popularity came about a year before his arrest in jerusalem so probably somewhere in that second year or so of his ministry when he fed the five thousand on a hillside near galilee after which he had to flee to the hills with only a few of his committed followers jesus knew that the crowds were likely to misunderstand his teachings he knew this I mean, he talked about this openly in his teachings. The image that appears in his teachings of the 12 is along the lines of Isaiah's description of the suffering servant, right? He would be a suffering servant. Uh, He would be despised and rejected by men. His stripes, we are healed, right? He, He was not 
what we would see, you know, Pastor Rod uses this all the time, but like big man on campus. He was ordinary Jew. <clears throat> and the images of Zechariah's prediction on the king of Israel, or uh, that the king of Israel would be a humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. Now I'm going to stop there. So what I'm going to do here eventually is tie in these prophecies with Christ's ministry, how he fulfills them, and how, how essentially they, get, they establish the church, and how that, what that means for, for you and me here today. And obviously, we study through the ages. What I would have you do, if you want, go ahead, turn to the last page of this before we, um, just to get a visual. I'm a visual learner. I forget stuff. Um, unless I see it kind of in a map. Here is sort of a, a timeline just of this age with five or six major events. So starting with the birth of Christ. And then about 32, 33 years later, you have the death of Christ. Then you have the first martyr, the death of Stephen. And then you have Nero, the rule of Nero. Not a very nice guy. We'll actually learn a little bit about him next week. Then you've got the death of Paul. That was very important in church history because Paul went to, to minister primarily to who? Gentiles. All right, so we see the spread and establishment of local churches in the epistles written to what? Local churches. Very important. And then you have the destruction of Jerusalem, which we call the great diaspora or the spreading out, out of Jews. And well, what did that do? That did nothing else but also spread more news about Christ and the church. It's a ton. Is your brain swimming? Sorry if it is. Well, let's pray about that. And then I'm one minute over. Lord, we thank you so much for preserving the history of your church even today. Lord, we sit in, uh, in, in the best place that we could possibly sit, which is in Christ. And so, Lord, we enjoy that. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in common through Christ. We thank you for how you have established the church, how you are the cornerstone and the head of your bride. And it's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.